I started out traveling for my Lord many years ago. Had a lot of heartache, met a lot of grief and woe. And when I would stumble, then I would humble down. And there I would say I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Well, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Gotta make it to heaven somehow. Though the devil tempts me and he tries to turn me around. He's offered everything that's got a name, all the wealth I'd want. Worldly fame, if I could still, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. There's nothing in the world that can ever take the place of God's love. Silver and gold could never buy his love from above. When my soul needs healing and I begin to feel in his power, I can say, thank the Lord, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Well, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Gotta make it to heaven somehow. Though the devil tempts me and he tries to turn me around. He's offered everything that's got a name, all the wealth I want, worldly fame. If I could still, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Well, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Gotta make it to heaven somehow. Though the devil tempts me and he tries to turn me around. He's offered everything that's got a name. All the wealth I'd want. Worldly fame, if I could still, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. He's offered everything that's got a name. All the wealth I'd want. Worldly fame, if I could still, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. If I could still, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Thank y'all so much. Didn't you, weren't you blessed? Maybe we should just end now, so we'll end on a blessing. There we go. Hey! Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And again and again, you've probably noticed this recurring theme uh, weaved throughout this psalm. The psalmist octaves each seem to have this theme of opposition or affliction or adversity weave throughout. You may be saying, well, I'm getting kind of tired of that theme. But then you start thinking about your own life, right? And if you really think about your own life long and hard enough, you think, you know, through the years that uh, maybe you realize, yeah, you know, I've, faced the, I've faced opposition. You know, I'll have those good moments, those happy moments, those moments that are easy to rejoice in. And then I have those moments where, man, i got to go pray because it's hard to rejoice in this moment because of the opposition or the affliction or the adversity. I, I have faced. You know, uh, when we first began this Psalm 119, I told you some um, um, experts or biblical scholars or whatever, they think that there was a variety of authors involved in this Psalm, that it was not written by any one author. Because while the theme is the same throughout about the Word of God, there's varying writing styles. And I told you, I actually, see, I, 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 uh, I align myself with those commentaries that say, no, it's one author. 
but it was written over a long period of time. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's not like somebody sat down one day, and if this was David, it's not like David sat down one day and said, hmm, I think I'll write the longest chapter in the Bible today. But instead, probably what happened is the Lord began to work in his life, and he began to write some things from his past, but then he also started writing things in his, in his present, and then, and then as his life moved on, then he wrote some more and wrote some more and wrote some more, and as his life changed, as he aged, his writing style changed, but he began to see this common thread throughout his life about the Word of God. But we also see David had this common thread about opposition. And if you think about David's life, from the beginning of what we know about David to the end of what we know about David, we see opposition weaved in and out of his life when he was a shepherd boy. He faced the opposition of lions and bears. We see that testified about in Scripture. Uh, when he got a little bit older, he faced the opposition of his own family. When, uh, when uh, Samuel came to anoint him, his brothers looked down on that. When he went to go and fight Goliath, his brothers looked on, down on him at that point too. He also faced the opposition of Goliath. Uh, then after he was anointed king and, and he was serving in Saul's court, he faced the opposition of Saul. And uh, Saul wanting to kill him, and he was running out, out in the countryside and hiding in caves and whatnot. And then later on in life, his own wife opposed him, Michal or Micah or however you want to pronounce her name. Uh, it was one of Saul's kids, actually, Saul's daughters. Uh, so she opposed him. And then we see uh, a little later in his life, his own children uh, tried to uh, have a little forceful coup. So his own children were opposing him. David had this theme of opposition running throughout his life. And maybe you're saying, well, man, poor David. But then you start looking at your own life, right? And you think, well, gosh, you know, I, I've had opposition in my life. You know, there was those kids in high school, maybe, or, or elementary school, or, or maybe a bad home life. Maybe dad or mom or a brother was always opposing you, always against you. You know, maybe you, you look a bit further in life. Maybe you had that spouse that was always opposing you or the kids your own children were always opposing you, or maybe someone in the workforce. And so you can identify with this author. You say, you know what, I had some good times. Sometimes it was easy to rejoice in, but then there's those times in life where I've got to pray without ceasing so I can find my reason to rejoice. And we find that in the Lord. I wonder if our experience of facing opposition... This recurrence of opposition in our life is anything like the psalmist's experience. Let's read Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. He says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fell from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Let me pause a moment for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and your presence in this place. Father, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us as you need to and change us from the inside out. 
your name I pray this, Jesus. Amen. So what you may notice in this text is a clear division of the psalmist describing his opposition and what they are doing to him and how he chooses to respond to their attacks on him. And the first thing I want to do is I want to look at that opposition. What does that opposition do to him? And there's, there's three things that he says about his, about his opposition in verses 85 through verses 87. The first thing he says about him is that they are digging pits for me. They are, uh, the, they are digging pits for me. We've talked about this word, the proud. The proud have dug pits and how the proud is a reference to those who deny God, deny God's way of salvation, uh, that they are those who are rebelling against God. He says that they are digging pits. What does he mean by that? Well, he could have literally meant pits, you know. Uh, maybe they had literally built some animal traps uh, for the purpose of, of trapping him. Uh, but more than likely, they, this is a spiritual idea. But if they are literal pits, then you can almost think about uh, Daniel, uh, who is also one of the, the people believed perhaps may have written Psalm 119. You think about Daniel and, and how he uh, had been thrown into that pit with the lions, maybe they were literally digging a pit for him. But really what this is referencing to was the wise or scrupulous and crafty way that his opposition was trying to entrap him. They have dug pits for me. It's talking about how his enemies, those who oppose him, were trying to ensnare him, trying to trap him. And in fact, if you think about Daniel's life, that's exactly what happened to him as some of his fellow leaders and governing authorities went to the king and uh, persuaded the king to make this edict, this uh, law, that if, he, if anyone prayed to anyone other than the king, then they would be thrown into the lion's pit, the lion's den, uh, so they would be devoured. And they made that edict, they made that command, knowing full well that Daniel, in his virtue and in his ethics, would go and pray to the Lord because he did it every single day. In other words, they have dug pits for me, may have been a reference to someone who is trying to use your own virtue, your own life, dedicated to the Lord against you. And they figuratively dug a pit for this person so that he would fall into it and be ensnared. Listen, if you take a stand for God, I assure you there will be opposition. I've heard this said many times. If you are not facing some sort of opposition in your life every once in a while, more than likely, you are standing up for nothing. Opposition is a sign that you are taking a stand for something. And if you are taking a stand for God, I, I guarantee you, you will face opposition. They will dig ways for you to be ensnared, find ways for you to be ensnared. You remember, like, when you're thinking about the people in your life, understand, and we've covered this before, listen, people are really, they're not... They're only acting in what the evil one is commanding them or directing them to do. They don't even realize it sometimes. That your enemy is not necessarily a human flesh and blood, though we tend to put a human flesh and blood face on it. But our enemy, our opposition, is really acting out the evil commands of the evil one. The next thing he says in verse 86, they persecute me wrongly. My version says wrongfully, and I kind of chuckled when I read that because I thought, is there a right way to persecute? <laughs> is, there a, is there a good way that we can persecute? And of course, it leads me to question, or, or it, it leads me to try to question, what does the Hebrew 
words really saying here. The, the idea behind this word for persecute, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it actually means to pursue. It means to follow. And so what the psalmist is really saying is, is they pursue me, they follow me wrongfully. In other words, there's a bad intent. There is a bad motivation for why they are chasing after the psalmist, why they are pursuing him, why they are pressing in on him. They didn't want to imitate his life of following the Lord. They wanted to intimidate him from following the Lord. Whether you realize it or not, there is a whole world pressing in on you, pursuing you, chasing you wrongfully because they don't want you to stand for the Lord. They do not want you following after the Lord, but instead they are trying to pull you away from a lifestyle of following after the Lord. The world tries to convince us to not take our relationship with God so seriously. The world tries to convince us to live life how our heart leads us. The world tries to convince us that we should think like the world or look like the world or live like the world if we want to be accepted by our generation or the people that we live around with. The world tries to invade our mind and our heart with its ideals, its ethics, and its morality or lack thereof. The world does this wrongfully, though. In other words, it doesn't do this because it wants to improve our life, even though the world might say, listen, if you do this, it will improve your life. It doesn't really want to improve your life. It wants to pull you down onto their level. And it will happen slowly, and it will happen secretly, and it will happen systematically. That's the purpose, really, of opposition. It is pursuing you, it is following you, it is chasing after you for the purpose of pulling you down. We understand, we need to understand, that really is the point of opposition. Listen, I, I appreciate the protection that our president has issued out for pastors, that we are now allowed to preach whatever we want without fear of persecution coming on the pulpit. But if you think the world is done trying to silence the whole counsel of God's word, then I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona I'd like to sell to you. The world is not done. It will find another way, if not that way. Because the world is constantly pursuing us wrongfully. Wanting to pull us down. Listen, hey, I appreciate y'all's amens. There was a lady here last night that was giving, or last week that was giving you competition. She was amening just as loud as you, Kenneth. I sure appreciated that. I like hearing a little noise. It makes me know that I'm not putting you to sleep. The third thing he says in verse 87, they almost made an end of me. Verse 87, they almost made an end for me. And this is the extent the opposition is wanting to go to. Listen. The, the opposition does not want to stop until you are done in for. There is no tapping out with the opposition unless you are tapping out of the life of following God. He says, they almost made an end to me. The opposition was spiteful and hateful, and they had endurance. They endured to the point that they nearly brought an end to the psalmist. It doesn't imply what kind of an end. He doesn't say, is it physical or spiritual or emotional or anything like that. It could have been physical. They could have been pressing in on him or following him or pursuing him wrongfully so much to the point where he could physically no longer bear it and he was ready to call it quits on life and say, I'd rather just be dead. It's a possibility. 
Or maybe his blood pressure had gotten so high or his stress level had gotten so high that he physically could not take it any longer. Perhaps depression had set in on him because of the opposition he had faced and he could no longer have joy, rejoicing always. Maybe that's the physical quit on life. Or maybe, perhaps it was a spiritual end that they were bringing him to. A spiritual end. Was the psalmist considering quitting God? Was the psalmist giving up on his devotion to the Lord because he knew that if he just gave in to the way of opposition, they would leave him alone? Maybe he thought, you know what, if I give in to this temptation, I'll stop being tempted by it. Anybody ever thought that way? Those Cheetos were calling my name the other day. And I thought, you know, if I just eat a few Cheetos, I'll stop wanting the Cheetos. Honey, we need some more Cheetos. We're all out of Cheetos. Sometimes it's Cheetos, sometimes it's something else. The temptation, the opposition is, just won't get off of our back. And so we start to spiritually think. We think, if I'll just give in, it'll get off my back. Maybe that's the type of end that the psalmist was coming to. But hear what the psalmist says in verse 87. He says, they almost made it into me. My dad taught me a very important saying a long time ago. My kids know it. Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That's right. Almost doesn't count even when it comes to the enemy bringing an end to our lives, whether it is physical or spiritual. And as long as there is breath in our lungs, but more importantly, as long as there is a Holy Spirit within us, there is no end to us. There is hope that we should hang on to. And that's the hope this psalmist has. And in his hope, what does he do? Verse 87, or in, in the scripture, verse 86, what does he do? He cries out, help me. He's not crying out to the opposition. He's crying out to the Lord with that breath in his lungs, with that Holy Spirit within him. He is crying out, Lord, help me. He's not going to dear Abby. He's not going to Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or whoever the doctor is that we're watching on TV nowadays. He is calling out for the Lord. He cries out to the Lord and he goes running to the physical revelation of God, his word. Thousands of years ago, the psalmist was doing the same thing that we need to be doing in 2017. Crying out to the Lord and running to His Word. See the response to the opposition, starting in verse 81 through verse 83. And his response is, he says, he is fainting, he is failing, and he is useless. His first response is, simply states that I am fainting. My soul faints for your salvation, in verse 81. Then in verse 82, he says, my eyes fail from searching your word. The Hebrew word there for faint and fail are the same exact word, actually. It's the exact same Hebrew word. For whatever reason, in our English text, they translated the first one faint and the second one fail, probably because of the context of what it had to do to. But it's the same uh, word in Hebrew. By the way, that's our calf word. Calf, by the way, or cough, is the Hebrew letter for this section of of uh, Psalm 119, and that is the calf or cough word for verses 81 and verse 82, and it's that word for fell and faint. Exact same word, and the, the meaning behind this word is something to come to an end, to, to be fulfilled or to find uh, um, exhaustion almost. 
The English Standard Version translates this word uh, to the word long. My soul longs for your salvation. Right? Verse 82, my eyes long from searching, or my, actually, uh, my, my eyes long for your word. That, that, that phrase searching is not actually in the Hebrew. The English translators add, added that to verse uh, 82. And so it is properly translated, my eyes fell or long for your word. The attack of the opposition, in other words, is, is causing him to long for something from God's word. And what is he longing for? He's longing for hope. He's longing for salvation. He's longing for comfort. And he knows the only place he can find it is in God and the physical revelation we have of God, His Word, the Word of God. The attack of the opposition has driven him to God's Word and he is consumed in finding the answer to his situation in God's Word. And he is so consumed that this has rendered him utterly useless for anything else. Why do I say that? Because in verse, 30, or verse 83... He says, I have become like a wineskin in smoke. Now, if these days, if I were to tell you, man, I'm like a wineskin in smoke, you people would be like, what are you doing with wine? But this is an old saying. This is an old biblical saying. Wineskin. Some of your versions translate it bottle. I'm like a bottle in smoke. For some reason, when they would become old, they would be kind of set aside and and, and what would happen is if they were submitted for any reason whatsoever around fire or around smoke, that wineskin or that bottle would, would take on the properties of the fire and the smoke. It would begin to smell like smoke. And if you put wine into the wineskin, it would taste like smoke. Now, if we're talking about brisket, that's a good thing. But for them, you know, if we're talking about water, right? Nobody wants water that tastes like smoke. Nobody wants root beer that tastes like smoke. So we can now we can maybe understand this. If the container I'm putting my drink in smells like smoke and makes everything around it taste like smoke, it's useless. And what he is saying is that I have become so consumed with needing comfort, with needing hope, with needing salvation from God and searching it for his words that the opposition has rendered me utterly useless. I'm like a wineskin in smoke. And everything that comes around me, that's all that I'm going to be talking about, by the way. You ever been around someone and that's all they talk about is the opposition they are facing? All they can talk about is the bad things going on in their life? They can't seem to find the joy of the Lord? Sometimes that's the, that is what happens to us when we're facing opposition is we begin to be rendered useless for anything else. And I don't want to use that word if you're like, that's all I talk about is the opposition I'm facing. But we need to understand, like the psalmist understands, we need to get ourselves out of the smoke and fire and get ourselves into the word of the Lord. He says, yet I do not forget your statutes. In other words, he's saying, listen, I know what's going on with me. I know what's happening to me. I'm, I'm going to do my best, though, to put myself in the word of the Lord instead of in the fire and take on the properties of the word of the Lord instead of taking on the properties of the fire. He's looking for comfort, he's looking for hope, and he is looking for it in the promises of God. He asks questions in verse 82, in verse 84. He says in verse 82, when will you comfort me, God? 
Verse 84, how many are the days of your servant, God? In other words, how long are you going to make this continue on for me? How long are you going to let this happen to me? Still in verse 84, he says, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? In other words, he knows the promise of God where it says that he will take vengeance on those who do wrong to us. So he's saying, God, when are you going to do that? When are you going to fulfill that promise? I don't, I've, I've uttered that same prayer. God, when are you going to take vengeance on them people? God, God, when are you going to take care of those who are doing wrong by me or doing wrong to me? Maybe you haven't asked questions exactly like this, but maybe, maybe you've asked a question like, God, where are you? That's, that's, a, that's similar to what this guy is asking. Maybe you've asked, God, why do the bad people get good things happening to them? I've asked questions like this. Maybe you've said, God, why do you allow me to suffer like nobody else? When will you take vengeance, God? And as I've mentioned before, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions as long as they lead us to a deeper devotion to the Lord. And in the end, that is exactly what happens. The psalmist remembers his relationship with the Lord, and as he requests, Revival, Lord. Revive me, O Lord. Bring life back to me. That's his cry in verse 88. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness. And that's that Hebrew word hesed or mercy. Oh God, help me. Oh God, revive me. The psalmist comes full circle back to this dependence on God. He recognizes that the opposition has taken an almost into his life, but his life has not ended. He recognizes that the opposition has consumed him and made him useless for anything, especially the Lord's purposes. And so he goes to the Lord. And we must not miss the implication of verse 88. He says, revive me so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. In other words, it's not revive me so that I feel better about life, revive me so I have warm fuzzies, but revive me so that I may be walking in obedience. Revive me so I can remain in your will, God. His dependence is on the Lord. If the Lord does not revive his soul, he understands not only will he continue to have these bad feelings, not only will he continue to have opposition, but worse, he will not be able to be obedient to God's word. And to him, that is the worst thing. I want to remain in your will. I want to be able to keep the testimony that is God's word. Do we recognize our dependence upon God to revive us spiritually? I was telling these little kids, our ability to rejoice always, to rejoice in all things, is dependent on our praying without ceasing. And what I'm trying to tell you is it doesn't mean that we're sitting here constantly kneeled down with our eyes closed, though if you have the time, that's a great posture to have. But it's understanding that we can always be in this constant, constant mode of communication with the Lord. And sometimes the very best thing that we can pray to the Lord is His own word. God, I want to rejoice always, so help me pray without ceasing. Recognizing that our ability to walk in His will is a merciful act on our behalf, by our loving God and Father. Well, so what, you may be saying. And in closing, let me just say, I, I don't intend to sound like a broken record, us always talking about opposition over and over. But that's where Psalm 119 often takes us, is talking about opposition. And I think we need to address it because, as many of you have told me in private, that is a very real issue for you. 
you feel the opposition. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's spiritual or emotional, but you understand, even here in Colmenil, Texas, we feel the darkness of opposition against our lives. So we need the truth of the Scripture. We need the truth of the Scripture to be found in our lives. We need God's Word in our life. And while I, we can't put a name always on our opposition, we can't always understand the who's and the what's and the what for's, the truths about that identification, or that, about that opposition, there are some things that we can't understand about opposition. The first one is this. Our opposition will be who we least expect it to be. Often our opposition is who we least expect it to be. The psalmist seems to be talking about other people. But if we be, read back through, that isn't possible that his opposition his, is his own flesh. You see, it, it wasn't necessarily other people that were his opposition. It was his own wants and his own desires. Well, I sure would like some Cheetos, right? What is it that your flesh, your own body op, often opposes you doing in the will of the Lord. I know I really need to be sharing the gospel, but I just, I'm too afraid, right? I know I probably should be doing more, maybe teaching a Sunday school class, but I'm just too afraid, right? Sometimes it's who we least expect it. Our own flesh digs a pit for us. Our own flesh persecutes us wrongfully. My own desires make an end to me. Our our opposition could be other people. It could be non-Christians literally persecuting us for our faith. It could be family or it could be ourselves. I also noticed as I was reading through this, you know, another common theme throughout Psalm 119 is the psalmist often talks about his comrades, his fellow believers, his fellow followers of God. Where are they in this octave of verses? Is it possible that those people that feared the Lord, that turned to Him, that we talked about last week, that turned to Him, are now turning against Him? Nobody hurts the church like the church. Nobody hurts God's people like God's people. It's often who we least expect it. It's also often when we least expect it. Opposition never rears its head when we are ready for it. It never rears its head when we're like, come on, I've got it, I'm ready for it now, right? But sometimes it's in the middle of the night waking us from our sleep. Sometimes it's right after church when we're full of good, warm fuzzies and we're ready to go chow down on some fried chicken. That's when the opposition rears its ugly head. And instead of spreading the love of Christ, we spread some sort of venomous hate instead. It might come when we are down and out. It might come when we're on top of the mountaintop. It might come when we say, I just can't handle one more thing. Maybe this is why the psalmist said, they almost brought an end to me. Sometimes opposition comes at the worst possible time in life there is to have opposition. We just don't know. That's why we got to be on the ready to understand, you know what? Today may be the day that I face the worst opposition I've ever faced. Or it may come tomorrow. Or God may give me a, a merciful week of no opposition whatsoever. Praise the Lord. At those moments, we rejoice in that, right? Third, it might come where 
we least expect it. Spiritual opposition will never attack us where we think it will attack. We may think it will attack us spiritually. We may think it may attack us with some sort of temptation. It may not even attack us directly, though. Opposition will sometimes go after our kids, our marriages, our church family. Listen, I pray regularly that God would put a hedge of protection around this church to keep evil out. Because you just never know where the opposition might come from. One of the thoughts I expressed earlier was that when the psalmist states they have dug pits for me, he was talking about spiteful, obvious places that will ensnare him in some way. Remember, opposition may very well use your virtue, your ethics, your morals against you. Fourth, opposition will come how we least expect it. How we least expect it. The psalmist states, they persecute me wrongfully. I wondered about that phrase all week. From the humor of, is there a right way to be persecuted, to understanding the language and knowing that the psalmist is talking about being pursued or a group of people following him. And these that are following him with wrong intent, pursuing him, pressing in on his life, they want him to fail. Opposition can be out of spite, envy, jealousy. When other Christians are our opposition, they may not care for our leadership style. They may not care for our teaching style. They may not care for how we have a relationship with the Lord that they do not have because it makes them uncomfortable about their own lack of relationship with the Lord. It may cause them to question their own faith and nobody wants to question their own faith. So instead of questioning your faith and going to the Lord, they attack and they oppose. Thinking about this opposition the psalmist faced and the possibility of other followers of God being his opposition thinks me, leads me, though, to think about our Lord. His opposition the psalmist faced how sometimes Christians can be our opposition. It causes me to think about our Lord, who faced opposition from his own family. He faced opposition from the Pharisees. He faced opposition from his disciples, his followers, those he least expected to oppose him. Let me backtrack that. We would least expect it. He was God. He knew it was coming. But you wouldn't think that he would face that kind of opposition. Yet, he did. And we may say, well, God, I don't understand why I'm, why I'm facing this opposition. We can surely look at his life and say, I don't understand why he faced that opposition. He was so good. He was so loving. He was so full of, of the word of God and the works of God. Why would he face that kind of opposition? It's because they were trying to bring an end to him. But thankfully, that end to him brought a beginning to us. Thankfully, the end that he faced, that really wasn't an end at all, brought a beginning to life for us. And so when the psalmist says, revive me according to your loving kindness, your hesed, your mercy, we're reminded of how we are revived by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And we can say, listen, that opposition almost brought an end to Christ. It didn't. But it brought new life to us. 
And it reminds me of a verse that we were left with by Jesus Christ. He says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Be of joy. Always be joyful. It doesn't say all that. I'm just putting that in there. Because he says, I have overcome the world. Listen, we will never overcome opposition. We will never overcome a place where we face opposition in our life. But we can have life from the one who has overcome that opposition. And that one is Jesus Christ. And we may not realize that, that fulfillment of overcoming all of opposition this side of heaven, but I guarantee you we will realize it on the other side of it. When we realize heaven and the promise and salvation complete and full through Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, are you trying to face opposition on your own? Crying out for somebody to help you, but you haven't realized that hesed, that mercy, that loving kindness that Christ offers you. Because they brought an end to his physical life, but it brought a beginning to our possibility for spiritual life. Have you realized that salvation? Or are you still trying to face it on your own? We're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response, and we're going to sing a song, and I want to invite you to come and talk to me about reckon, or realizing that loving kindness from our Lord through Jesus Christ. Realizing a beginning to spiritual life that came because they brought an end to his life. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I've got, I've got that under control, but I, I've just... I need to spend some time in prayer. I want to invite you during this time of response to come and pray. We've got kneeling benches you can come to and pray at as well. If you just have questions, I'd love to have you come up and, and talk. Let's pray together. Let's bow and, and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for um, speaking to each and every one of us individually how we need to be spoken to. We thank you, Lord, that even though your physical life came to an end while you were here on this earth, that end brought a beginning that we can all experience. It brought endurance to the opposition that we will all face. It brought peace and cheer, joy that we can all experience, even when we're facing the trouble of this world. Heavenly Father, I pray for your word and your Holy Spirit to speak to us loudest. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.